It's that drag net. We're going to cast a wide net. We're going to pass pit bull bands. And for the innocent people, innocent dog owners that are caught up in this and have their dogs taken from them, they're kind of poor or they're kind of brown and they kind of don't matter. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that, that we can get at the people we want to get at and whoever's innocent that's caught up in that doesn't matter. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, we welcome back Anthony Barnett of the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center and Game Dog Guardian to discuss breed-specific legislation. If you're new to this podcast, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We save each other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. If you love dogs, you'll love Dog Words. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. Thank you to everyone who's downloaded, subscribed, rated, and shared Dog Words. Now that you're a follower of the podcast, take the next step and become a participant. Let us know what you want to hear. Go to rosiefund.org and send suggestions for topics and guests. We'd especially like to hear from anyone involved with a dog rescue group who's interested in being a guest on the show. And everyone... Please follow Rosie Fund on social media, especially the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel that offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and Shelter Dogs, including some exclusive content. Check out the latest video of Rocky, a big, beautiful terrier pit mix looking for his forever home. We're inching closer to our subscriber goal that will give us the Rosie Fund URL on YouTube. If you don't know what that means, trust us that it will greatly help with exposure for Rosie Fund, which ultimately allows us to help more dogs. Just subscribe. It's free, and you will not be inundated with notifications from the channel. It will really help us out if you can comment on as many videos as you can. This feeds the algorithm that helps our channel pop up in people's YouTube feed. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Here's a quick reminder that the Wires Underground Concert Series will resume this fall. If you live in the Kansas City area and would like to host a small and socially distant outdoor concert in your backyard or on your porch, please contact the Wires at thewiresduo at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-R-E-S-D-U-O at gmail.com. They've been working on writing new material and would love the opportunity to play for you and your friends while you support local artists. If you don't know who the Wires are, that's the music you're listening to right now. Today on Dog Words, we welcome back Anthony Barnett, who discussed breed-specific legislation with his wife, Katie, recently on the show. Welcome back, Anthony. Thank you for having me again. You used a phrase that was on our broadcast for the first time. No other guest had used the phrase <laughs> socioeconomic underpinnings. And, <laughs> and we asked you back to discuss that, and you graciously agreed. Before we dive into that, Anthony, just remind our listeners who you are and what you do and why you would be a guest on Dog Words. <laughs> I run a doggy daycare in Lawrence I've done for about 15 and a half years now and sort of concurrent with that I have also founded a couple nonprofits who do work uh, with dogs and focus on the human canine bond uh, game dog guardian was the first one and then uh, the symbiotic behavioral treatment center are my two nonprofits 
If anyone wants to know more about breed-specific legislation issues that we discussed on this show, go back to episode 21, where we had both Katie and Anthony on. But today, we're going to talk about the socioeconomic underpinnings of breed-specific legislation. And as we discussed on that previous episode, it's not just legislation. It's HOA, it's landlords, it's insurance companies. There's a variety of rules that impact on the surface where you can have a type of dog, whether it's breed or characteristics. But it's actually much more complex than that. And I'll let you explain the complexity. (laughs) I guess to tie this together, I'll give you a little, like what drew me in to this aspect of breed-specific legislation, which is I'm white, I'm male, I'm straight, college-educated, middle-class, blue-collar upbringing, was never hungry, just basically an overall lottery winner in modern America. My first experience with othering, my first experience of any kind of limitation, really, was when I became a pit bull owner. And now there's places I couldn't rent. And how old were you when that happened? Mid-20s. Mid-20s. So 20-plus years with no headwinds. None. And now all of a sudden, I've got a dog. and People crossed the street and saw me walking the dogs. Um, You know, because that quickly turned into multiple pit bulls because I was a terrible foster home. I tried fostering and I just kept them all. Oh, it's hard to say no. Yeah. (laughs) Now I'm a guy walking two or three pit bulls down the street. I can't move to certain cities. I can't rent from certain landlords. I can't get coverage from certain insurance companies. Um, well, that's clearly because you're a drug lord. Right. Well, that's the assumption. And yes. so to me, that was a pretty small taste of a pretty bad deal. And I just thought, wow, this this is not cool. And I'm obviously just getting a little a little look through a little window of this attitude. And this is pretty terrible. And... I really think I should learn more about people who face these kinds of things on a much bigger scale and who can't leave them at home or hide them or any of that stuff. So I just became a lot more interested in that concept of othering and the role that it played in breed-specific legislation, which sort of led me down the path of understanding how and where it comes from and how it's rooted in some of the, the racist architecture of our culture and, 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 and classist is meant to discriminate against poor people and, and people of color and just whoever gets caught up in that dragnet. Sorry. That's not what I think a lot of people picture with breed specific legislation that, okay, so you can't have a pit bull in that apartment complex move to a different apartment complex, move to a different town. You don't like that town because of their breed requirements? Well, move somewhere else or just get a different dog. Right. For me, the human canine bond is sacred. And it's something to be taken very seriously. And there's just, I could never trade out dogs like I could a couch. And the thought of expecting anybody to do that was that that's why I got involved in the fight. Like I shouldn't have to give up my dog and neither should anybody else Mm. for no reason. We talked about the relationship that humans have with dogs on the Julian Javor episode, the pet pilot rescue. We 
bred dogs. We selected dogs from a wolf population and domesticated them and made them dependent on us for not only food and shelter, but companionship. We have a responsibility to dogs to give them that connection. To tell someone they have to break that connection is psychologically, emotionally devastating to both the dog and the person. Perhaps even more so to the person because we understand how awful this is. Dogs living in the moment, it's bad for them, but I think they might be able to move on a little better, but not much. So expecting someone to just say, well, this couch doesn't fit in my apartment, swap it out for a different style of couch. I can't have my dog here. We'll just get a different dog. Let someone else have your dog. Well, there's, there's, there's it kind makes of, no sense to me. Oh, I it's get, unfathomable to me I, because I get that. I get that. of the connection I have, not only with my dog, but with, it seems like, every dog I meet, let alone my own dog. I want to stick with this for a minute. There's actual, actually three sides to this coin, um, and I want to stick with this first one here, which I would augment that a little bit in that we didn't just choose and domesticate dogs. We co-evolved. So people who tended to connect with their dogs found survival advantages and tended to have more kids. And dogs who tended to connect with people tended to survive more and tended to have more puppies to where here we are. And there's even some evidence that dogs augmenting our hunting had to do with our increased protein intake and directly indirectly led to cities and civilization as we know it, our relationship with dogs. It's a lot more than just a domesticated animal. And I say that because it contributes to the depth of our bond. We co-evolve together. This is some of what we talk about with the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center. So it was a symbiotic relationship. And then it's grown into this the way that we see it today, which is dogs kept as pets. and Beyond a cultural norm, it's right. arguably in our DNA. Yes. And even that could be yet another episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but So it's beyond just having an affection for a dog. It's a, it literally in our genetics to viscerally connect with this animal who's a predator. You know, we connect with horse people, you know, bring that up a lot. You know, people have deep, deep bonds with horses as well, but horses are prey animals and you're in their space if they let you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we are predators and dogs are predators and there, there's no other cooperative predatory species yeah. like that, that bond like that. To me, that's part of the, the sort of anthropological element of, of why we bond with dogs the way we do, why they mean so much. The second side of our three-sided coin is to not give up your dog implies the necessity of means that I'm not going to give up my dog and I I can't just move because I don't have the money. I can't just change jobs Mm -hmm. and I can't commute that far. So that's where some of your economic issues come from. That's sort of implying that just anybody can just hop up and move Mm -hmm. because they can't keep their dog. So yeah, you're, you're put in a position where you have to decide, do I want to significantly downgrade my lifestyle, which might not be that. Well, even if it's not a downgrade, I, I, I I guess what I, that that you're, you're putting people in, you have to make a choice. Do I want to adjust my lifestyle by either making more money or having to spend more money on 
transportation or doggy daycare or a variety of things? Or do I want to give up my, a part of my body? Even within that question is a level of means that not every dog owner has. A doggy daycare, dog sitters, mm-hmm. being able to move at all, being mm-hmm. able to break a lease. I guess what I'm saying fun, is like, you're, you're, you're framing a choice that would be a significant financial decision yes. for someone. But for the most part, the people who are doing that framing it would not be a significant financial decision. Right. That would be a nothing choice for me to make. It's like, oh, okay, oh, yeah, I, like, I'm a consultant. And whether or not I take a job where I can work from home, where I have to spend more time with the clients, like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to have to spend more money on a dog sitter and dog walker to take care of my dog on these days. I'm going to be gone, but I'm going to make up for it because I've added this client who's willing to pay that rate. Right. That's not a situation that most people are in if they're being told your dog can't stay here. Right. Part of this sort of white people with means approach in animal welfare so far has been to imagine that people will have to have attained a certain level of financial success or they just shouldn't have a dog. That's sort of like you should be able to properly care for this dog. And there's obviously a, a minimum level of care and stuff that dogs should have but that minimum is, is honestly a little below what some people would ascribe. There's people that don't have any money and love their dogs a lot and take as best care as they can. And this sort of patronizing, like, well, your dog just doesn't live how I think your dog should live, yeah. so you can't have your dog. And we talked it, about it, that with uh, Scott Cotter of Spay and Neuter Kansas City. Yeah, There's homeless people they deal with, veterans mm-hmm. they deal mm-hmm. with, who are alive because they have a dog. Right, right. And those people can't move because you told them their dog looks a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so they can't have it. Those are people who are skipping their own meals. Yes, to feed, to feed their, dog. their dogs. Right. To me, that's sacred. That is a connection that we should honor and respect, you know, for those people. And then the third side of our three-sided coin here is then that this kind of then becomes new redlining, new neighborhood building with people whose faces and color palette you desire and economic means, you know, even if there's not an overt expressed racism, there's a classism involved there. And you don't have to spend much time around breed specific legislation to hear the verbiage, to hear the nomenclature of these people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, sometimes it's a little coded, like, you know, we're just, we're just banning pit bulls because we want to keep out, the gang members and thugs. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you've got the, the light kind of white code, but other times it's very expressed. You know, there was a guy up in Michigan who was on one of the committees that had been formed by the city council up there. And I, I won't say the town, but he said, they know who they are. You're right. He said this quote, quote, we've had enough of these people come to our community from the city. We don't need them to bring their dogs. And that's, just barely code. Yeah. And you're I and I will back you up. I've read the same article from a legitimate source. This isn't you just saying someone would say something like right. this. It's like, no, someone actually right. said this who was in a position right. of decision making power. And yes, and Pitbull bands have been explained by you know, again with it's an anti gang measure. It's just uh it's associated with gang culture, it gets lumped in, hip hop culture, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's just 
all that coded language well, gets And they mixed think in. they're giving themselves an out by saying people like this because people like this includes the white gangbanger that we're not specifically talking about people of color. It's, it's people like this who would do this. It's like, yeah, people like this, people who you think are a lesser or an other because they subscribe to a lifestyle of a group that you find objectionable. Right. It's and that yes, is exactly what So it makes that white up. person the same as that person that you don't want in your neighborhood. It's othering. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's not always expressed racism. Like I said, it's But classism, they think it gives them but, cover because well there's white people in this group. It's like, yeah, white people that you don't consider to be white people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean good good. They're not white really people. white people. Yeah. And this is just it's just pervasive. The attitude you can't get away from it. You can't see that it, it's neighborhood building. It's it, the, the classist and racist stuff underneath it. And, and it, you know, and part of this too, part of this issue is, is what I think the white community is struggling with anyway, is that you don't have to wake up with hate in your heart to be a part of a system that is racist and that affects other people a different way. And that's what people struggle with. It's like, you know, Hey, I don't hate, uh, minorities and I don't really hate pit bulls as public safety. And it's like, well, you're still not taking the time to learn about the issue and to understand where your shortcomings are in your thinking and to remove yourself from a system that's set up to affect certain people more. You know, again, it's that dragnet. We're going to cast a wide net. We're going to pass pit bull bans. And for the innocent people, the innocent dog owners that are caught up in this and have their dogs taken from them, they're kind of poor or they're kind of brown and they kind of don't matter. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that, that we can get at the people we want to get at and whoever's innocent that's caught up in that doesn't matter. And we see that still in the, in the sort of arbitrary way that, that it's enforced oftentimes. If you're a, you know, live in a gated community and you're friends with the police chief and everybody knows your dog is nice and it happens to be a pit bull, they're not going to mess with you. Mm-hmm. They're not, nobody's coming into your gated neighborhood to take your dog. I mean, it, it gets enforced in the same way that policing happens generally, which is in certain class neighborhoods, there's fewer officers and there's a fewer uh, incidents for encounters with officers. And in other neighborhoods, it's much more heavily populated as, uh, with enforcement. No community has the means to truly and evenly enforce a ban. So it's always resources are allocated in the certain areas where we think they should be allocated the most and what, which areas do you think those are, you know, they're going to be allocated in a way that either generates revenue directly from fines or makes the people who pay taxes happy. Happy. That's right. So it, it comes down to follow the money. Right. So those are some of the main issues that that come under that. And it's just, again, it, and so you're just going to fix that. Right. You're just going to fix all that. So, <laughs> so thank you for coming on the show today, <laughs> Anthony Barnett, if you're interested in following Anthony's. So, Oh, there, Oh, there's more. <laughs> Is there more to that? Well, this just that's the system. Some of the system, that's not everything. But then if you keep drilling down, then you start to see the, the way that we think of pit bulls, the way that we talk about, breeds, all that stuff is really rooted in our eugenic and racist past. I'll say, and I mean, even when I've written about this, I'm not a guy, I don't ascribe to doggy racism. You know, racism is racism. That's it. There's nothing the same. But we use the same processes. We use the same 
moral and intellectual failings because we didn't just invent a new system to discuss dogs that have become a proxy for the people who make us uncomfortable in our white middle class mentalities. So if you have a dog that's a golden retriever and a pit bull mix, what kind of dog is that? It's a pit bull. It's a pit bull. Mm -hmm. It's a pit bull mix, period. Nobody cares Mm -hmm. what the other half is. Under this sort of, uh, you know, white archetypal society, there's a concept called hypo descent, which means if you have their words, not mine, a higher race and a lower race that have a child, that child can never ascend to the higher race. If in America, a white person, a black person have a kid, that person is black because the Again, their words, not mine. Superior race has been diluted, diluted, yeah. watered down. That's hypo descent. That's why all shades of black are black and only white is white in America. This doesn't sound like uh, Nazi Germany at all, but go on. <laughs> That's how we think about breed mixing. In that, this perfect family dog, this golden retriever, his blood has been diluted by this monster, this pit bull monster. And he can never ascend to this nice dog again. And again, I, I, don't, I don't ascribe to these ideas of doggy racism. I think it really um, it does a disservice to thinking of racism. And, but I do think it's important to talk about how we think of it because it has become a proxy. There are certain people that we associate with pit bulls, and it's just become a proxy for us to still discriminate against those people. But I think you could broadly describe it as doggy prejudice, that racism is a kind of prejudice, and that this prejudice or judging a dog not based on its actions, its characteristics, and by characteristics, not its breed characteristics, but the characteristics of this dog, how it specifically behaves. If you're judging it outside of itself, that's prejudice. That's dangerous when you're making decisions about someone's worth. I think there's something in what you're saying with the dog. I think people do have that visceral fear of being attacked by a dog. I think that's a real element. Fear is a real element of this. Without any data to support this and based only on my experiences in the world, I would posit that people's deeper fear is more what they associate with pit bulls. I think the idea of being attacked by a dog is scary but a little distant. If you've never Mm -hmm. seen it or been around it, you just can't even fathom what a serious dog attack would be so I would posit again with no data, just my experiences that people are a little more scared of what they associate with pit bulls, that sort of cultural element. I would argue that that's at least possible. It's an emotional reaction and it's a fear of the unknown. It's someone who doesn't want to splash around in the surf because they're afraid of a shark attack. And you only change that through experience yeah. for some people. Yeah. To have a positive emotional experience splashing around in the surf and it's like, well, that was totally worth it. Yeah. And that's that that fear element is is sort of well documented in this. You know, it's, it's fear telescoping where we zoom in on on an issue, uh, you know, like being more scared of terrorism than to die in a car accident, where we don't have a realistic understanding of threat. That's well discussed in these in these circles. And that I guess is why I think people tend to be more scared of what's associated with pit bulls because it's so hard to imagine. You know, you can't imagine really getting bit by a shark. So you're willing to take that risk in the ocean because like, eh, it's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I personally would be more worried about being drowned, but 
Yeah, a lot more people drown in right. their backyard swimming pool right. than yep. are killed by a shark or even attacked by a shark, let alone killed by a shark. Or by pit bulls. Yeah. <laughs> Pools are way more dangerous. If you're mm-hmm. really, if, and we get that argument sometimes, like, well, if it saves just one kid, isn't it worth it? Well, okay, why can you have swimming pools in your community? If one, why do you have five-gallon buckets? You know, like it, you've already decided it's not worth it to save just one kid because we live lives with risk. If saving one life was all that mattered, the speed limit would be five miles an hour. But there's a trade-off because the benefit of driving faster allows us to transport critical goods that we couldn't transport at five miles an hour. It allows you to live further from where you work or to take a job that you wouldn't otherwise be able to take. Right. It allows us to enjoy vacation, something more trivial than, right. uh, than work. So, so, I, so there's the trade-off. Right. Is there a trade-off with dogs that makes it worth it? I think we established in the first part of this interview, absolutely Yes. They're remarkably safe. They're remarkably safe for the number of dogs in our community and for how few serious injuries there are, given the number of contacts. You know, in our, they're, they're remarkably safe. Like, you know, and this is a silly example, but it's true. Uh, much more dangerous to children than dogs are their parents, statistically. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids' parents do way more harm to kids than dogs ever do. But to what you were saying, I think every life is valuable. I don't think anything should be looked over or glossed over, but we have made decisions of a culture of accepting a certain mm-hmm. amount of risk. Now, I would argue we're becoming more risk averse, and that's uh, doing its own bit of harm, our unwillingness to have experiences or let people do things, but uh, that's yet another podcast. <laughs> I'm keeping a list. We're, we're right. going we're going to do a special sweeps week. It's going to be nothing but interviews with, with Anthony Barnett on all these topics that we're stacking up. But so to that fear that people have, another sort of direct parallel is this idea of a super predator that, you know, young black men were called that, you know, during the crime hysteria, the sort of crime bill era. Know where we build this concept of the super predator of, and just to point out, the crime bill era was not the post Civil War Reconstruction South. The crime bill era was <laughs> the nineteen nineties. Yeah, the nineties. Yeah, where and and all there's there's it's well studied all these impacts of perceiving black people to have some sort of super power that they feel less pain they're treated differently by doctors, their pain is managed differently, they're prescribed less medicine, complaints in emergency rooms are taken less seriously in an encounter with police officers that can be a contributing factor to implicit bias that a large black person might be more dangerous than a large white person just implicitly, even mm-hmm. again, even without, you don't have to wake up. It's with like hate. being attacked by a bear. Well, it's just, even you don't have to wake up with hate in your heart. Yeah. Again, is what I'm saying. Like It's just this we're told that by our culture subconsciously our whole lives. We see the images, we hear the words, you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. And you don't have to hate people or hate somebody to have heard those words and to have internalized that image. So it still does the harm in the way that we interact and treat people. It's not a conscious decision, but it's the conditioning that you can't avoid. Even without hate in your heart, it still does harm. And we've overlaid that super predator status onto dogs as well, onto pit bulls specifically where you start hearing things like thinking the tasers don't work on well, what kind of dog would a super predator have? Well, right. A super predator dog. Right. I've heard things like the shape of a pit bull skull is so that bullets will, will ricochet. Off. I mean, you just hear the wildest stuff built up mm-hmm. around this super predator status, the 
2000 pound per square inch locking jaw, which is more than an alligator. Like that's not even mm-hmm. a thing. It's the same language. Like and basically the way I've said it, we, we hate the same. We other the same. We use the same concepts that we've used on people. We just overlay those onto the dogs that we perceive to be owned by those people. Now I had kind of a cool happening with that. As I was getting involved with these issues, a dog that I had with a girl I used to date, she took him to California when she moved and he kind of became a TV and movie star and he was in Fruitvale station. Okay. His name was Ian and that was a a Ryan Coogler movie and Michael B. Jordan was the star and he was the young man who was shot by a, um, the Bart cop in San Francisco Mm -hmm. when he was in custody and they had a scene where he was interacting with Ian. Ian was a stray and he pet Ian and then Ian was hit by a car and killed and nobody cared. Nobody did anything. And, and Michael B. Jordan's character ran over there and screamed for help and held him while he died. And then in an interview, um, they said they, they put that in there as a metaphor for young black men dying in America and how common it is. And nobody stops and nobody cares even when people are crying for help. And that was kind of cool to just be a tangentially associated with that. I didn't have anything to do with training him or that was all mm-hmm. her getting him in the movie. I didn't have anything to do with it, but he lived in my house and then he was in that movie and got to deliver that message. So I thought that was pretty cool. So didn't <laughs> train him to be a killer attack dog. That's how did they overcome just his natural inclination? Well, to- no, <laughs> nobody talks about how people safely survive working with pit bulls in Hollywood, but yeah, it's, you know, like John Wick, he had to have all those uh, ninja skills just mm-hmm. to survive working with his And people. if anybody knows anything about insurance underwriting in Hollywood, if those movie stars were truly at any kind of risk, they wouldn't <laughs> let them anywhere near the pit bulls. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. That's like they rarely let them drive the car. Right. Not even for stunts, just drive a car. Yeah. With everything we've covered so far in the interview, it gives us... I believe several access points to why breed specific legislation and rules needs to be addressed. It's not about, well, this just makes it easier to own a dog. There's less inconvenience for when you're apartment shopping. It's for us to be better people to do what's right, not just for dogs, but for what it says about who we are as a society the way we're treating dogs, the way we're treating them as a proxy for humans, and then the way we're treating those humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what my work really now with the human canine bond is, is really all about how it helps me learn to see the world through other people's eyes and how to connect with people. You know, it's the work I do with therapy dogs at the VA. You know, it's the classes that I teach there. It's, thinking of breed specific issues in these ways. That's really the direction that my nonprofit work and just my personal passions have been is how can this human canine bond teach me about somebody else? How can it connect me with somebody else? How can it make me get at least some understanding of their worldview? I mean, the world will never treat me the way that it treats some of these other people, but just anything I can do to claw some sort of understanding of it, I think it's important to learn and to be able to process how things are different for other people. So for me, the human canine bond isn't just about my dog. It's really about the people around me. It's a people issue for me now. 
In the opening to each episode of Dog Words, we talk about how this is a podcast for people who love dogs. I can pretty much guarantee then all of our listeners on board with anything you want to do to help dogs and support dogs. So what you're doing, is there any way someone can follow you, support you? Where would they need to go? I've really had to focus my my work on the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center. I've just... As a part of my business expansion, I was able to get a little bit of extra land, so now I have a place to build the center, and we're kind of focused on getting the fundraising going for that. Um, so that's really most of my work right now. But Game Dog Guardian is still up. It's on Facebook. We do still have a website that we've been slowly rebuilding, and I, I do see myself circling back to these issues. So um, for now, it would be best for someone just to follow on Facebook, and yeah. once the... Uh yeah, we're on Facebook, and the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center is on Facebook. Both of them have websites, uh, you know, gamedogguardian.com and symbioticsbtc.org. That will be symbioticbtc.org. linked in the description. Symbioticbtc.org. Um, symbioticbtc.org. I'll, yeah. I'll make sure the link is in the website so people don't have to, to, to write that down. And if you've had to recalibrate what you're doing, that means that there is space in this for other people to step in, step up. They might not know where to start. Would a good place to start possibly be for them to contact you? Yes, feel free to reach out to me. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. Because they can either join you or they can learn from what you've done and start off on their own journey. First of all, I would recommend a book. It's called Pitbull, The Battle for an American Icon. It's by Bronwyn Dickey. It's in my opinion, the best book that examines these issues. It's an absolutely thorough story of the rise and fall and rise again of the pit bull in American culture. She just does an amazing job of digging even deeper than I ever have bothered or knew to on these issues. And it's, it's outstanding if you want to understand the cultural context of the quote-unquote pit bull issue. Then I would say the most direct action happening right now relating to dogs and social justice besides understanding how laws and breed specific legislation for instance affects people is the organizations in your community who are helping underprivileged people take better care of their dogs the initiatives to keep dogs out of shelters to reduce the reasons that dogs need to be in shelters to help provide food dog houses, um, teaching, grooming, any of those programs through, for example, Kansas City Pet Project has a resource center. Spain Neuter Kansas City has done some of this work through a program that Katie actually helped them start. And if you're interested in the social issues surrounding the human-canine bond, I think the best thing going right now are these organizations who are trying to help poor people or help people facing any kind of challenge keep and take better care of their animals. Simple as that. And that, and I'm not being facetious. That is simple. That's an easy step you can take. Yep. And if you say, well, I don't really have a lot of time. It's like I could maybe give an hour every other week. I can't be there every day. I can't be there, be there every week. An hour a week, they would love to have you. An hour a month, they would love to have you. Anytime you pay attention to the animal legislation that's coming up in your community or the state, you start to understand how some of the holistic approach to healthier communities you know with the animals and, and with animal ownership you can support those ordinances through donations or through political pressure to your leaders 
let your community, let the nonprofits and people involved know that you support those things and, and find out how to get involved that way. They'll always take your donations. If you're short on time, like, uh, you know, they'll always take financial support and then warm bodies are always welcome too to help. You know, a lot of these people they're trying to reach, they're good people and they're trying to take good care of their dogs and they just, they just need a little help sometimes or just need to have a question or just, you, you could do a lot of good with just a minimal amount of effort. <laughs> I encourage our listeners to make that effort. Anything you do is greatly appreciated and makes this world a better place. I want to thank Anthony Barnett for taking the time to make this world a better place and taking time to talk to us today. Well, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Anthony Barnett of the Symbiotic Behavioral Treatment Center and Game Dog Guardian for joining us. Please check out the links for their websites and social media in the description of this episode. And, of course, a big thank you to alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks, for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Learn more about The Wires at thewires.info and download their music on iTunes. Also, check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Remember, the Wires Underground Concert Series will resume this fall. If you live in the Kansas City area and would like to host a small and socially distant outdoor concert in your backyard or on your porch, please contact them at thewiresduo at gmail.com. Be sure to catch the next episode of Dog Words. Karen Miller joins us to discuss rescuing, fostering, training, and partnering with Border Collies. As always, please download, subscribe, rate, and share Dog Words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Support Rosie Fund by following us on social media, and please subscribe to the free Rosie Fund YouTube channel. You really do need to see Rocky's video. He's just a big bundle of love. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions at rosiefund.org, and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor of the Dog Words podcast. And again, if you have any ideas for topics or guests, let us know at rosiefund.org. Thank you for listening, and remember, we save each other.